I think a big thing about like interventions today is that historically and what you saw on TV was this like surprise factor. Like let's trick your loved one into coming to a place where they're not going to be comfortable, where they're going to have their guard up and where they're, you're going to sit down and read them some letters. That's not how like 85% of them are done today. There are still some people who do it that way, but it's not the majority of it now. And there are some circumstances where maybe that's your only option. It's your only option. Good afternoon. My name is Graham Durge, and I'm the founder and CEO of New Waters Recovery in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to our weekly podcast, Finding New Waters. I'm joined today by our Director of Admissions and Outreach, B. Reeves and Isaac Waters, who is the founder of Recovery Frameworks. Recovery Frameworks offers non-clinical support services to supplement the teams of individuals with substance use disorder and eating disorders. Isaac Waters is a certified peer specialist, a life coach, and certified ARISE interventionist. He works extensively with individuals and families who are struggling with navigating early recovery from addictions, mental health, mental health barriers, and eating disorders. In the past, he has dealt with his own struggles with substance use disorders, mental health challenges, and family systems. In long-term recovery, Isaac now dedicates his life to working with individuals in recovery. It is his passion to help families heal, to watch individuals launch into a new phase of life, and help those he works with find purpose. Our goal in creating Finding New Waters is to provide a resource for families to help navigate the complexities of supporting a loved one while struggling with substance use or mental health issues. When we find ourselves in crisis due to one of these issues, most people have no idea where to turn. We hope to shed some light onto what is often the darkest hour for many families. Isaac, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank happy you, to be Isaac. here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And um, this has been kind of long overdue and happy to finally have you up here. And um, so Isaac is actually joining us today from Atlanta, uh, flew up last night. So we're very grateful for him, you know, traveling all this way in person. Um, and, you know, I, I was doing a little bit of research leading up to this. And, um, you know, one of the things that kind of I came across early on was, that you were a guy that got sober very young, right? How yes. old were you when you got sober? I was 19 when I got sober. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, teenager, teenager. Yep. And, you know, for me, you know, I was 26 when I finally ended up getting sober, but um, I definitely could have gotten sober a lot younger. You know, for me, it was drinking was really, it was never a social thing. It was always an issue. I was drinking tequila by myself at 14 years old in my bedroom while I was supposed to be doing homework, which is not a, a normal <laughs> you know, behavior pattern by any means. And, um, you know, so, you know, it, it, what was interesting was that my family was very much in the dark. And, you know, I grew up in one of those families where, you know, you don't talk about those uncomfortable things, right? You kind of you sweep everything under the rug. And I always find it so interesting when people get sober that young and are able to sustain long-term support variety for for that long and that period of time and um, so tell us a little bit about what, what that was like and and kind of some of your experiences getting sober that young yeah definitely I think it was uh I, I come from a family that like alcoholism has ran rampant through like I'm uh I think fifth generation at this point and mm. so it was no surprise like my my mom I can remember when I was 12 years old being like hey you might have a problem with this one day and like mm. that was the last time we talked about it Are, is your family in recovery so my father is. Right. Um, well, there you go. Yeah. So I, I think that I briefly mentioned it. We were talking about another treatment center before the podcast, and I was like, "Yeah, my dad went there a few times." Right. And so, 
that was uh that was like my childhood and I grew up that way and it was kind of I can remember like dare coming to schools and stuff like that and I was always the first one to sign my name because I like knew like what drugs and alcohol did to people and like my dad was very successful like mm -hmm. it was not like one of those stories and so I had you know some of that stigma was already broken down in me I knew it could happen to anybody and uh, I always told myself it wasn't going to happen to me and I was a late bloomer in my friend group and like it was the first thing I was the first one to fall down too. Yep. So, um, I think that like from the moment I started using like drugs and alcohol, I knew that it was going to be a problem. Like there was no doubt. Um, I knew that I liked it more than my friends and it took me quickly. Like I think that I took my first drink at 16 and I was in a treatment center at 17. So wow. like very fast, right. very fast. Yeah. And mom and dad probably picked up on it. Very fast. My too. Right. dad was still drinking. Oh, so he was still drinking. Yeah, he was my little hideout. So I would go out Got there it. when I get in trouble with mom, and like dad, like was none the wiser onto what was going on, and um, I got in a lot of trouble very quickly as well. And so I think that like when that like charade fell down, my parents were very attentive. Mm -hmm. um, and I went through this period where I would go to treatment, and my dad would be drinking. I'd come back from treatment, and he would go to treatment. So we did this thing for like three years, where like we'd each, you know, when the other one was in treatment, we would relapse, like whoever was at home. And then finally, my dad and I went to treatment at the same time. Um, we went to the same treatment facility. No way. Yeah, same treatment wow. facility. I got there like three months later than he did, and when I walked in the door, they were like, "Oh, you're Dave's son. We've been expecting you." And I was like you guys are awful. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, my dad and I have, my dad's got, uh, like three more months than I do sober and we've both been able to maintain it. That's this crazy. Point. Yeah. And mom had to deal with all that. Mom <laughs> got the short end of the stick for sure. Yeah, for she sure. Is an, a She's saint. a saint. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A saint. Lovely woman. Lovely woman. So, and so how many times were you in treatment? I went to treatment. Uh, if you count like PHP and IOPs after residential, I went to six different facilities. Gotcha. Um, but that was a lot of it was kind of a continuation, a step down from residential. Always and, a step down. Yeah. Um, and so I, each time I went to treatment, I would come back and do an IOP when I got out. Got it. Um, so what do you think was, was one of the kind of key factors in, in you being able to figure this out at such a young age? Yeah, so I went to uh, Talbot Recovery uh, when I was 19, and at the time, they had a young adult program. Mm -hmm. And so I had been thrown into, like, teen treatment centers where nobody wanted to be there, yep. um, and then I had been thrown into the, like, generic – you know, insurance mill treatment facility down in Florida and, you know, just across, like I'm sitting next to a 75 year old woman that's there for opiates. And like, I'm not, I have nothing to identify with her. Right. And then when I sat in that room and there was 45 guys between 18 and 25, like that were talking about recovery and like trying to do things and talking about going to college or talking about being in college and how they're going to navigate this now. I think that it was the first time that I like had tried this recovery way of life and did not feel hopeless. So mm. like there was something to achieve just beyond getting sober that like my life had purpose again. Wow. That's awesome. How did you manage to not only stay sober, but have fun going to the college of Charleston? Yeah. So I, sober. I waited two years into my recovery to go to college. So like, I really wanted to be prepared for that like scene, you know, cause mm -hmm. college Charleston's a big party scene. Like everything that I ever knew about college, it was just like one big party. And, uh, beyond the academics, like I was kind of nervous about navigating that. And uh, I had this core group of friends that were all sober and all young and all doing things like they all had this thing that they were passionate about. They had all gone to college or they were coming back and they were in med school or they were in PT school. And so this group, uh, there was like seven or eight of us that we just like 
hung out all the time. Like when someone was out of school or someone was off work, there was, we lived in the house that everybody came by to, to like get together on a Friday night. And sometimes we would do a meeting. Sometimes we would do a poker game. Sometimes we would go out to eat, like whatever it was I had, you know, I, I believe that people sober up, you know, together, but they stay sober in packs. Like people find their core group and they stick together. You know, last year I was in five weddings of those guys. Um, And so like everyone has, continued to stay sober. And I, I think that it, it's like a testament to like what we did very early on. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's incredible too, because, um, you know, unfortunately most colleges are not very open to having a lot of these supportive services on their oh, campus. Right. And it's like, they don't want to recognize the fact that they've got a substance use problem or a mental health problem on their, uh, on their, uh, on their campus. And, um, they would rather just kick the kid out or, you know, just kind of, you know, not deal with the issue rather mm-hmm. than somehow supporting or, or creating some resources on campus that can support their students that are in sobriety, right? So I think College of Charleston, going back to that, is a really interesting one because they're one of these you know, programs that have been really open to it and have done an incredible job of creating a collegiate program um, for recovery. And uh, you were one of the founders of their collegiate program. So can you kind of talk about that process and getting that launched? Oh what my that God. was like? How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> yeah. So that we started that initiative in 2015 and it was uh several of my friends uh steve pulley who was a great guy who had gone through the collegiate recovery program at georgia southern which was one of the first they got um that grant from texas tech and and have been up and running for a long time that uh he was coming back to musc for uh, pt school that was one of the guys that i was just mentioning and mm-hmm. so he came down and uh, another friend of mine, Sam Spafford, had gone to Augsburg College, which was the second collegiate recovery program. He had just moved to Charleston. My friend John Nix was starting at CFC. He had done a semester and I had been applying for you know two years to get into the College of Charleston and kept getting right. denied. And so right. uh, we had started but you going- you were determined. Yeah, <laughs> resilient, I think is, yes, uh, that's and so that's what I say. Um, we had started going to them and saying like, hey, we'd like to start this, you know, initiative on campus. Like we only had one actual student and just like three random guys were knocking on doors saying like, we'd like to help you guys start this. And uh, we kept hearing that same thing. Like if we start a program like this, it's admitting that we have a drug problem on campus. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's not admitting you have a drug problem. It is admitting that there are students in recovery on your campus, like which is uh, totally two two very different things. And finally, I'm sitting in an office one day. We had like somehow finagled this meeting with the dean of students who, you know, the last time I was sitting in a dean's office, like I was being asked to leave my high school, you know. And so everyone had got around and we had like a federal judge in the room. We had like three tenured professors. Everyone's giving these like long, like, you know, explanations of who they are and why they're here. And I was like, my name's Isaac Waters. Like I've applied to your school seven times and been denied. Like I want to help you guys. And uh, I got a call like I think a week later that I had been accepted. Um, And so we got started, we applied for a grant and received it. And uh, me and John Nix met with, you know, Dr. Jerry Cabot at the time was the Dean of Students. We met with her once a week and just like started resource mapping um, and seeing like who the players were, who could support this, what, what could we do? And finally the school was like, we can't give you guys any money. Like we, we can't do it. And we were all like, we want you to hire a director. We want you to hire a director. We want our own physical space. Like we had a lot of, a ton of big asks for them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they were like, well, if you go raise, you know, half a million dollars, we'll start this thing for you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we were all like hopeless, like, you know, little kids. And the first person that we talked to donated $118,000 on the spot. Wow. That's incredible. And so after that, you know, it just like snowballed, you know, she held a fundraiser at our house. We got, you know, 
uh, over $300,000 donated in like two months. Uh, and then we started the director search. And uh, I think that you guys both know Wood Marchant at this point. He's the director there. He has been since 2016. And, you know, it started with two students. And at this point, it's graduated like 35. And there's 20 active students in the program today. Wow, so that's awesome. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, and I actually went there uh, a few months back and I visited with Wood uh, Marchant. And he is, um, you know, still just, you know, he's in there every day with these guys and they're grinding. And, and if they have this this little office space with, you know, tons of snacks and food and, you know, all the guys come in and just hang out in between class and do homework. Yeah. And, and it's just a real community within this community, you know. Yeah. And it's just like, I just don't understand why we can't wrap our head around why we need these resources mm -hmm. in these colleges, right? I mean, you know, listen, we're dealing with the one of the biggest epidemics that we've ever seen. And now coming off of the pandemic, I mean, it's, you know, people can't get into doctors, they can't get into providers, they, you know, we're going downhill fast, and, um, and we just need to wake up, mm -hmm. you know? Well, I love the idea of the collegiate recovery, you know, instead of having to admit or, you know, air quotes, having to admit we have a problem here, it's more like, how about we have now we have a solution right here, you know, that's so cool. And yep. it's interesting the schools who um, have gotten gotten it, you know, Texas Tech and uh, Augsburg mm -hmm. didn't know about that. But then um, uh, Charlotte, you, Alabama. Know, Alabama. East, yeah, well, Alabama. you guys here in North Carolina, actually, the state uh, requires it. So if you're, if you're a state run university here in, Nor in North Carolina, you have to have it. Is that new? That's uh, 2015. Wow. Yeah, so um, cool. you guys have done yeah, a very cool job here. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, um, what do you tell? I mean, are, what's the demographic of you, people you uh, you work with typically from in recovery frameworks? Yeah, um, at Recovery Frameworks, we see this like bizarre end of the spectrum because I think obviously, like just due to my history, like we do a ton of college age individuals. Um, so we see this interesting like kind of spread it's 13 to 20 and then it is 55 to 70 hmm. um and so we are getting individuals that m this might be their first like soiree into like recovery initiatives or treatment or complex kind of issues and then we see individuals who are kind of in their retired life and like mm -hmm. have you know uh yeah. started some habits that aren't necessarily supportive to their long-term health right. basically two uh parts of yeah, you know, uh, two demographics that don't work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, about, yeah. About, right? yeah. life transitions. I yeah. think. Life yeah, 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 life transitions. And, and let's even you know back up a little bit more on that and say you know so you do sober companion jobs. Yeah. You do um, you know you work with clients that are struggling with eating disorders, mental health, um, case management, and interventions. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about like for instance, so the audience knows what is a sober transport or or a companion job? Yeah, definitely. I can I can give the the overview. Like yeah. I think when we started, I, I really thought that we were going to be serving just this like 18 to 22 because that's where I was when I got sober. So it was just going to be, you know, kids kind of entering college or might have failed out of college and we were going to start on a coaching side and our coaches meet with our the people that we serve anywhere from like five to 20 hours a week. And that's, you know, kind of across the spectrum. So any of our sober coaches our eating disorder coaches or our mental health coaches, what we do is we've got a 12 week curriculum that we're getting them started with. And that's, uh, really, we have a very extensive matchmaking process. So anyone who's onboarding with us as a client goes through a little mock mini assessment and we're figuring out different things like hobbies, skills, interests, strengths. Uh, we're looking at their past attempts at recovery, like what they're doing today. What does their lifestyle look like? They're getting a lifestyle assessment in that as well. And then we're matching them up with the coach that's going to be the best fit for them. And so you're getting someone who is tailor-made to you that has the same hobbies, has the same interests, has the same like path to recovery that you're go like 
striving for. So if you want to do 12 step, you're getting matched up with someone who does 12 step. If you want to do, uh, you know, faith-based recovery, you're getting matched with a faith-based recovery coach. And so, and you've got coaches all over the country, all over the country. Yeah. So our biggest chapters are in Atlanta, Raleigh, Charleston, Nashville, New York city, Miami, and LA. Um, that's where we have the, the widest roster of coaches. And so all of our uh, you know, that kind of bleeds into our companion side as well. Companions and coaches have the exact same job. The only difference is time. So companions live with their clients. So that's 24 seven. Um, I'll say on average, our coaching clients, you know, those people meeting part time stay with us for about 13 months. So we get them for a very long period yeah. of time. Yeah, um, huge. yeah a, a, a really unique way to do that. And our companion our live in on average, I think is 75 days. So someone who's leaving treatment, leaving a detox facility that might not have the capabilities to go to a long-term treatment center like that. Mm-hmm. They're going to, you know, use a companion to kind of come into the house, set them up, make sure that they're making it to all their appointments. You know, that the, if they have some complex kind of psychiatric or psychological needs that they are bringing that into the house as well. And we can facilitate all that through our case management side. Mm-hmm. So, And so who's a good candidate for the companion job? Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's across the spectrum. You know, what we talk about sometimes is is the younger side, like someone who is in college that might have had, you know, taken the summer off to go get well, and they've gone to treatment over the summer, or they might've had a medical withdrawal in the past semester. And they're determined just like I was to return to the college Charleston or to go to the college Charleston. They're determined to go back to that university, even though their parents are like, Whoa, you, you kind of hit a lot of roadblocks when you were going to school there. Like, why don't we think about somewhere new and, and talking to a young person like that? Like my big thing is like, let's use their strengths. They want to go back to college. Like, let's just make sure that they have the support structure around them to do so. And so that's a great candidate. Um, another great candidate is that kind of executive. So, uh, someone who necessarily does need this accountability, um, someone who might be traveling a lot for work or someone who kind of might not have accountability in the household, uh, someone who does need that kind of supportive structure, that coach to sit with them and say, like, we can get through today. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're building your schedule. This is what we're going to do tonight to make sure that we're following through on this recovery side of things. And I'm going to make sure that you're safe in your own house. Right. Yeah, what about for, for people who are say, you know, I've got a wedding this weekend. I've been out of treatment for, you know, two weeks. I'm doing all right, but I'm going to this wedding. You know, my best friend from college is getting married. Yeah. What do you do a companion just for that the weekend or is it need to be a, okay. Yeah, hundred percent. So we do short term stays and long term stays. Okay. So um most of the time it's it's just like that for the short term side of things. Like I've got a family vacation or I've got, you mm-hmm. know, this thing that I can't miss. I'm a little nervous about it. Mm-hmm. Um a big one for us is actually Christmas. Christmas Day is people who are like going around their family for the first time after treatment and they're a little bit nervous about it and they just want that backup and support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. And how do you find the uh, people who are the companions, who are the coaches, in, especially in cities where you're not necessarily like in that area or yeah. that familiar with it? Recruitment's a huge part of what I do. Um, and finding those profiles is something that is pretty unique because you think about like someone who's essentially going to be living with someone, like they got to be likable. Mm-hmm. Um, They've got to be really good at their job because this is important, uh, a line of work, and they've got to have like intuition and determination. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of those things are things that I can't train. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I travel all the time. I meet people wherever I can. I meet people in recovery initiatives. I go to meetings all over, different types of meeting styles of meetings. I get introduced by other people that are interested in this line of work. We've got you know, a five-step interview process with references and then personal personality tests and assessments that we do with them. And so it just gets further and further and along. And, and I find that that weeds out the people who 
probably won't be a good fit for something yeah. like this. Cause if you can't make it through this five stage interview process, you're probably not going to make it through 90 right. days living with someone else. Yeah, um, 100%. And so, uh, I think that that's a big thing. Another thing on the companionship line that we do really well is that we check in on them. I think that a lot of agencies are like, here's your job. Here's your location, mm-hmm. you know, meet them there. Um, I call them three times a day. I'm like, what are you doing? How are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like what's going on? Um, so they're never on an island out there. It's a big thing. They're always supported from the home Amazing. office. What are there? What are like a couple things they have absolutely have to have? I mean, do they have to be sober? I mean, uh, long-term recovery is okay. uh, number one. So we do a lot of work on the mental health side as well. And so anytime we are working with a complex mental health case, they have to have some type of clinical licensure, um, okay. whether that's KDAC, whether that's MSW, whether that's, you know, uh, LPC, LPCA, um, so they have to have that side of it for the mental health, uh, for the, uh, like substance use long-term recovery. So have to have more than five years to okay. work as a sober coach with us, uh, which is a, a, a good thing for us because I think that that five-year mark is, is pretty, uh, you just look at statistics at long-term recovery and like after five years, your odds of like lifelong recovery go up by 85%. Right. So yep. exponentially. Um, yeah, yeah. Exponentially. Yeah. I mean, man, the companion job is is uh, a wild one. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It I mean, is going and living with yeah. with folks for you know a month, two months at a time. Nine is, months. Yeah, <laughs> nine months. Yeah, nine I months. mean, you've done a nine month job. We've we've had them, and and it's have you personally? No, what's the longest no, you've done? No. Longest one that I've done is uh, three months. Three months. Three months, and that's with leave. All of our contracts we like write into it that like our companions work three weeks on four days off so got it um and we like ship them all over the country wherever they want to go like what resort do you want to be at for four days like right, yeah right. yeah That's come amazing. back yeah go yeah. check in on yourself yeah love it so what about um so you are an arise interventionist as mm-hmm. well right so yeah. what would you say would you say that you're doing your your company and, and business now is comprised you know you're doing more interventions more companion jobs or i would say that uh mostly companion jobs, uh, and then coaching and then interventions, um, interventions really, uh, we, our entire office got trained in that so that we could kind of, I guess, more so use that out of need. Um, and it's a great way for us to cooperate and collaborate with treatment centers too. Um, so I think that that was, uh, really the purpose of that was so that we could kind of be more of a tool in the landscape of these non-clinical services. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say? We, here at New Waters, and then in our personal lives, we all talk to people who the families are calling me as an employee here, yeah. and me as somebody in recovery, and it's true for everybody here. And then they're just not willing to really go that next step and go the intervention route. They think they can just sort of cobble together something. And what would you say to families who are sort of like, they know about them, and they probably from what they've seen on TV. Oh. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what, yeah. do you, what do you say to them about Don't. like, you know, the value add. Yeah. Don't trust what you see on TV. I think that that's what we know these days. Right. Um, so, uh, I think a big thing about like interventions today is that historically and what you saw on TV was this like surprise factor, Mm -hmm. like let's trick your loved one Mm -hmm. into coming to a place where they're not going to be comfortable, where they're going to have their guard up and where they're, you're going to sit down and read them some letters. That's not how like 85% of them are done today. There are still some people who do it that way, Mm -hmm. but 
it's not the majority of it now. And there are some circumstances where maybe that's your only option. It's your only option. Right? Yeah. You know, and you do have to pull that card. It's, you know, probably not the best, the first choice. It's right? not the first but, choice. You know, and you're an Arise intervention inter interventionist, so you mm -hmm. can talk a little bit about what that means too. Yeah. So the Arise model is invitational intervention. Yeah. And so that's looking more so at the family system as a whole instead of the individual as the problem, which I think as a person in recovery, like I can really identify with that because mm. – I, I mean, my family held an intervention on me. I'm in a like therapy session with, you know, my father who is intoxicated, like, and I'm thinking that this is family intervention. And I'm like, so excited to walk into this meeting to tell him like how bad he is and all this kind of stuff. And 10 minutes into it, he's like, you're missing the elephant in the room. And I'm like, well, what's that dad? And like, knock, knock, knock. And like my mom, my grandparents, like my cousins, like all walk into this therapist's office. And I was like, you tricked me, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. and I didn't listen to a thing that they said. Um, and so I think anytime someone can make a, a deliberate choice in themselves to say, like, I want to go to treatment, that your odds of getting them to treatment, A, increase. Like, you're not going to have this person who's just, like, saying yes so that they can then run away as soon as you let them out of the room. But, B, you're setting them up for success in the long run. And then as an, as an interventionist, like – working to make sure that the family doesn't stop working when the loved one gets into treatment. That's the mm -hmm. biggest value add because holding these families accountable and like putting them in their own like style of family treatment and, and getting them plugged in with resources as well. Like we know that when families are working on themselves and working through the systems issues that they have as a, you know, this is a family disease that as they work on themselves, the odds of successful recovery for the one that they've been worried about for so long increase as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and so tell me a little bit, like kind of just fast tracking into your life now, you yeah. know, that's your business and, and obviously how you, you know, and, and listen, I, I can relate to this as well. And I'm sure that you got into this field because, you know, like myself, it was after getting sober and going through treatment, it was like, gosh, if I can do what, you know, those guys did for me and make a career out of it, what an amazing way to make a living. Right. And helping people and, and you know, ultimately saving, helping people save their lives. So what are you doing now for your recovery and, and your life? And what is life like now for you? Oh, uh, it's a dream. Um, I think that like, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to celebrate 10 years, uh, earlier this year and like never thought a, that that was possible. And like B, I think that my recovery has shifted so much since the pandemic that like, I really didn't know what it was going to look like these days. And so when you took meetings away from me, which was like a huge aspect of that social recovery that I, I like grew to love and what I found out like need, um, I had to create new ways to do that when, when we all went on lockdown. And so I find that today, like the biggest thing that I do to support my like recovery is, is a wellness. Like that was something that I did not incorporate in my first five years. And so I think that like just in and of itself, like I make sure that I'm following a structure and following a routine. I like watch what I like, you know, ingest and, and I try to, to stay on the healthier side of things and be it staying in touch with the people that I'm close with. Like mm -hmm. it's the connections that I have not only in recovery, um, but in family and friends and, and all of that. And then it's making sure that I'm still like suiting up and showing up to the place, uh, into my 12 step meetings and like raising my hand when people say that they need help and like saying like, this is what I'm here to do. Yeah. So this is how I did it. If you'd like to do it this way, we can. Yeah. Um, gotta give it away. Yeah. Gotta right. give it away. Yeah. And I think that it's that, uh, and what I kind of heard there was like balance, right. And finding the balance. And, um, that's, that's been a constant struggle for me in recovery. And, you know, obviously, you know, starting a business is tough. You know, we're, we've been open for six months here, uh, or a little over six months now here, no, new waters. And, 
you know, finding that balance can be really, really tough sometimes. And, um, you know, so what are those, some of those tools that you have to really kind of get yourself back on track when you kind of find yourself going off? Uh, I would say that my biggest tool is my calendar today. Like mm. that's my biggest thing because I, I put things on my calendar that I want to do, things that I have to do and things that like I probably need to do, you know, mm -hmm. like my, my therapy appointments go on there and I know that I can't book anything around that. Like the right. gym goes on there. I know that I can't book anything around that. And then, uh, inevitably like it is just like holding myself accountable to the own, own goals that I'm setting for myself. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that goal is, is you know, like make it to four meetings this week because you were only able to make it to one last week. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, we're going to spend this much time with like family. We're going to spend this much time with friends. Like, and uh, I think that at the end of my week, I always like kind of, I, I have two calendars. I have one for what I set out to do and one for what I actually did. So like I measure like the differences mm -hmm. and uh, I think the balance like comes out in that because when I find that, you know, oh wait, I took work calls from six to 10 one night when I was like supposed to like go to the gym and go have dinner with my friends. Like there's something there. Um, and inevitably work wins. I'll tell you that like yeah. work, work yeah. always wins as a business owner. Like it's, it's impossible for it not to. And the phone's ringing seven days a week, seven days a week. Right? And yeah. 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. Yeah. So, was... And we pick it up and people are always amazed when, you know, or, or like on Saturday night when we're on a phone call with the family at nine 30, like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to yeah. keep you. And it's like, this is like literally I'm doing this on a daily basis. Yeah. So, and what's um, so crazy what is that it's their worst day. Mm -hmm. And it's like, right. it's our every day. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like this and is what we do. Makes me happy to yeah. be able to help someone. Even, even it is, it is my job, but I still love doing it. Yeah, definitely. But I love what you said about the calendar. I just recently um, realized I just wasn't, you know, even the nights I had kind of scheduled to go to meetings, the way our, you know, schedules work, that I just right. wasn't going to as many. So I, every Tuesday... Like I'm still going to go to some at night, but I have one that I just, and I have, since I put it on my calendar, I've been every time Yeah, and I just have to do it, right. you know? And if it's there, then I will respect the calendar. And you know, that first week I remember thinking like, well, this guy's coming in, but someone else could handle it. So I just went, if nothing else, to set the precedent that I'm going to do this for myself. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I just listened to a podcast the other day. I ran into a guy I know from the 12 step rooms at the gym who told me I should listen to this podcast about burnout. And it was, and it was a similar conversation about, um, you know, the the calendar being a tool. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear that. And you know, we're talking about recovery and spirituality, and it's like my outlet calendar is my most valuable tool. But I I hear you. Right. We talk about like this pandemic of substance use, and like that's why you know, of course we're seeing the numbers increase of treatment admissions, but I think that there's a pandemic inside of the providers that, and that's burnout. Like, yes. 100%. I mean, how many times, like the turnover of yeah. like, and all of that stuff, it's exactly right. Um, so it's hard, man. And, and, um, you know, medical providers with clinicians, especially, um, and, um, you know, we actually next month are doing an episode on, on this podcast Perfect. on burnout. <laughs> so yeah. everybody tune in next yeah. month for the burnout. Episode. <laughs> Dr. Burnout, nice, right? nice Dr. little burnout. Dr. Yep. Nice plug. Nice <laughs> yeah. plug. Yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> so, um, no, so I, I totally agree with that. And that's like a constant battle for constant. me, man. And, and for me, it's so much of it. And you kind of, you added or touched on it with like the eating, the working out, like the holistic stuff that we're doing, whether it's like meditation or journaling, sleep, sleep is the biggest, yeah. right? What yeah. did you say? Cold plunge. Cold plunge. Yeah. Yes. Cold, hot, cold therapy, yeah. um, you know, biohacking, all that stuff is is great. And, um, and when I'm not doing it, you know, I just, there's a, a total difference mm -hmm. in, in my day, you know? Right. So, um, I, you know, wish, or I try to do that every day in my, in my world, but it's just, it's tough sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. What's your meditation? 
practice? Uh, my meditation practice is five minutes every morning with a cup of coffee. So I sit there, I do quiet for five minutes, and then I read. I've got the 24-hour book that I Love read it. every day. Yeah, Love it. You've been yeah. reading that for 10 years. 10 years. I still have my 24 hours a day yeah. book that I yeah. got in treatment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my father mailed me one. Yeah. Um, my grandfather mailed me one the second time I went to treatment. My grandfather was in recovery as well. Um, yeah, so we would all three go to meetings together, which was pretty That's special. So cool. Yeah, I, I've never cool. seen that. I've seen a few father son, father, uh, mother daughter thing, but never, yeah. uh, never three generations. Three generations. Yeah. That's really cool. So, it would be interesting to do your genogram too, oh, I've and done it. see kind of like <laughs> the <laughs> patterns as they as they break down, and then and then your future generations now after. You guys have all hopefully broken the cycle to some extent. Yeah, know? I think uh, I did one a couple years ago and was looking at my family and every uh, like waters in the family tree was actively in recovery. Wow. Um, and so, really? yeah, male, like only the men, like not on the women's side. Like wow, it's just like the, the men. And uh, I had a cousin who was in recovery, uncle who's in recovery. Like, um, you know, I got my baby cousin called me like three months ago and was like, I think I might have a problem. And I was like, wow. yeah, bud, look at your family tree, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we knew it. Yeah. We knew it. it was coming. We knew it when you were sex. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, well, Isaac, thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, been such a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better, hearing about your work. Obviously you're doing incredible work and, um, you know, looking forward to collaborating with you on, on clients down the road. Um, but as well, um, we will have all of Isaac's information on our website, findingnewwaters.com as well. This will be broadcast on all, uh, podcast platforms. So, uh, please come and check us out, uh, for next, next week's episode as well. And thank you for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks thank for you, me, Isaac. guys. Thank you for coming. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thank you, Graham.